Amen. Well, you can go ahead. We're going to continue on from where we left off last week. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 17. Um, the message of the gospel must be something other than helping us live a good life. We need more than to show up to a place where the music is so emotionally moving that we get chill bumps and that's how we know that God loves us. We need more than a preacher who's entertaining, who's warm, and who helps us see uh, the Bible and how it teaches us how to live well. We need more than emotionally moving quiet times to help us when life is quite overwhelming. It's crumbling around us. And all we know to do is to try to keep the boat from turning over. While the world argues about what a woman is, and we argue about whether this was ever a Christian nation, we're terrified because our hope is exposed in all of these earthly things. So what's going to help us, beloved? What's going to help us when we see a lack of visible transformation in our life? And we're battling ongoing sin. What's faith going to do for you when you haven't felt much emotionally about the things of God in weeks? What does faith mean now? Because we need a God who isn't thrown off by our often too cold and sluggish hearts. We need a gospel that gives righteousness that gives forgiveness, and it asks for nothing in exchange because we have nothing to give. We need good news about something that has happened. We need objective truth that does not change as you and I change. We need mercy. We need grace. And mercy has a name. Grace has a name. Righteousness has a name. Forgiveness has a name, Jesus. And the Father is pleased with us because of Jesus. And so I get to open God's word and talk about Jesus this morning. And so as we do that, I have uh, a, a brief outline here. It's section 1, verses 1 through 8, uh, offer a meditation. Then section 2, verses 9 through 13 offer one more meditation and then a very brief conclusion of our time together. So without going any further, I'm going to read God's word for us, starting in Matthew 17, and verse 1. So after six days, Jesus took with him, let me start over, to remind us that the words we read this morning are God's holy words infallible, perfect, inspired by His Spirit. And they have the power to cut us between the heart and soul and spirit. And they're powerful. And so let's hear these words as, as God's words as I read them this morning. So after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. 
If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face, and they were terrified. But Jesus came, and he touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that uh, first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So we give God praise for his word this morning. And we're going to jump off right into section one. And we're going to look at uh, this first uh, couple verses, verses one through uh, seven, one through eight, excuse me. And so, but, but before we do that, just a brief overview of this text. You know, this whole, you know, extraordinary event is the fulfillment of what we talked about last week, how Jesus promised some of the disciples that they would witness the glorious coming of the Son of God before their death, uh, coming in his kingdom. And this serves as a prelude to the greater and final coming of Christ, which was predicted in chapter 16, 27, about the final judgment, which leads to eschatological uh, judgment. And so the purpose, though, of this whole event is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment he is the accomplishment of all the law and all the prophets. Uh, and along with this, we should see the compassion of our God who, uh, and how this whole event supports the disciples' faith as they're going to witness the Messiah being crucified. And the Lord in this moment is showing them the glory that awaits. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful imagery there. As they're going to go and suffer, they're not going to bear their cross. They're going to forsake their Savior and watch him die. And this moment is, is the Lord saying, I will win, have no fear. Glory awaits us. And so let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So several, um, several times throughout Matthew's gospel, uh, a mountain is mentioned. And it's certainly referring to Mount Sinai. I mean, right off the bat, think about the Sermon on the Mount, how the Lord Jesus climbs up a mountain and he gives a sermon on the law, the greatest sermon on the law, uh, and how he ultimately fulfills that law, and he is righteousness. But along with this, uh, this whole event echoes Exodus 24 with Moses on the mountain in this covenant ceremony where he's receiving the law and God's communicating to him and he's communicating to him uh, on behalf or, or to, through him to Israel. But Exodus 24 describes this way. The glory of the Lord, this is verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And I bring this to your attention because it helps us later see how this mountaintop experience explains Jesus's identity. So let's move on to, to verse two. So they're on the mountain and he's transfigured or transformed uh, in front of the disciples in his 
face is shone like the sun, and his clouds, uh, his clothes became white as light. So his outward appearance, if you will, matched his inward essence. We know that Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and his humanity was like a veil, you know, covering his Godhead. But we must understand that this isn't a costume. It wasn't just like he just wrapped himself in humanity. He became, he's fully God, fully man, one person, the God man, Jesus Christ. Uh, yet he emptied himself, lowered himself to the earth. And in this moment, what he's doing is actually showing his Godhead uh, in, a, in a sense. Uh, in, this, in this moment. So his face is shown like the sun. Reverting back to Exodus, Moses comes off the mountain and his face was glowing. Because he had been in the glory and the presence of the Lord when he was receiving the law. For God is light. So it's no, it's no surprise. Moses is glowing when he comes out of being the pre, in the presence of the Lord. And here Jesus shows his glory and he's brighter than the sun. Clothes white. Our God is light. One of the greatest things we confess about the God of the universe who is the absolute. He's pure. He's holy. He's glorious. He is light as opposed to darkness. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. And Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, that he, the Lord Jesus, dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 104 and verse 2, Lord, you are very great. You are clothed in majesty and splendor. And he wraps himself in light as if it were a robe. In him, John says, was life and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And so the disciples at this moment get a taste of glory on, the, on this mountaintop. They get a taste of the boundless glory of God. Going to verse 3. So they, they go up on this mountain. They, they get a taste of the glory of God. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. Out of all people, Moses and Elijah show up. I think they really show up. It wasn't a, it was, this wasn't a dream. This wasn't a hallucination. Uh, this is a real event. They're there, and they're seeing them. And I guess they know it's Elijah, uh, Moses and Elijah because the Lord's talking to them, and maybe he addressed them as Moses and Elijah. We don't know, but the disciples know this is Moses and Elijah. Well, why, why Moses and Elijah? Uh, I was talking to Blake this morning. He was like, why not like Abraham, David? I mean, those are great people. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses, as we all know, represents the law, right? Elijah is this iconic prophet. And, you know, this is, this is, he's not only an iconic prophet, but it's prophesied him, prophesied of him in Malachi, right? That before the kingdom comes, Elijah will come back and restore all things. So not only was Elijah a great prophet who restored righteousness in his day, but it's prophesied that he's going to come back. Jesus is doing all these miracles and, and everyone's like, Elijah's back from the dead. So he's this iconic prophet, uh, Elijah is. And of course, as Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, he takes the law and the prophets and show how they all are fulfilled in him. So this moment is saying, here's the law and here's the prophets in one moment. Uh, and so through, uh, you know, like I, I quoted Malachi 4 and 4 and 5. Malachi 4, verse 4 and 5. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, 
The statues and the ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so through the word of God, Elijah, like I said, restored righteousness in his day. And he'll come back to restore righteousness in this age. And we're going to deal with more of this in section two as the Lord explains what he means here. But not only uh, does God you know, speak to us through his word now, but before he spoke through his prophet. How, how, how did the people hear from God? Well, through a prophet. Um, Moses served as a unique role as the mediator in the old covenant between God and Israel. And Jesus is here as the mediator of a new and better covenant. But what were they talking about? Well, it's funny you should ask because Luke 9.31 says that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were all talking about his coming death. So Elijah and Moses, uh, Moses and Elijah with Jesus, and they're talking about how he's going to die. The law and the prophets were always pointing to the great righteousness of God's wrath that would be poured out on God the Son, the death of Christ Jesus. The law was given to show sin. The sacrificial system taught about a substitute. It taught about atonement for sin. It taught about forgiveness. And there was also a, pro a proclaiming uh, in the sacrificial system, in the law and in the prophets, the defeat of all the enemies of God, all the people of God and their enemies, uh, the enemies would be defeated as the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, uh, comes to planet Earth. And I think it's important to realize that uh, Adam allowed Satan to come in and tempt him. Jesus shows up, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and he goes to Satan to be tempted. The Holy Spirit led him in the wilderness. He didn't allow Satan to come, he's going after him. He's going after the kingdom of darkness, and the light will not be overcome by darkness. And so he's tempted, and he succeeds. Jesus comes to defeat the curse of sin and death, to descend to hell, to proclaim victory, to rise from the grave with keys in his hand. And so the law and the prophets are fulfilled in the life and the death of Christ, and all of redemption will be consummated at his second and final return. And so verse 4, you know, they're, they're there with Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and they're talking. And of course, Peter speaks up, as he usually does. Lord, it is good that we are here. And he offers, I'll make three tents for you, for Elijah, and for Moses. He's overcome, right? This, this glorious moment, he's overcome, and he just starts talking, and he offers to build these tents, and there's a mixture of weakness and there's a mixture of, of goodwill in this offer to build tents. Uh, you know, Peter has great zeal and he wants to serve. But there's also a desire to stay on the mountaintop. Why do we need to leave here? I just seen the glory of the Lord and now Elijah and the, the law and the prophets are here. Let's, let's, let's unpack the bags and stay a while. There's no need to go back down the mountain. There's, there's all kinds of darkness down there. This is safe. This is good. This is, let's, I'll build tents. I mean, he's still talking here, just talking about what he could do. And he's forgotten. He's already forgotten. The Christ said he would suffer. The section before this, it wasn't even a week ago. The Lord said, I'm going to suffer, and you will too. He's like, let's build tents and stay here. We ain't going to suffer. Looks fine up here. Peter wants the crown without the cross, right? He wants the prize without the fight. 
as we talked about last week, this is natural to us. Looking for heaven on earth, Peter, the disciples are far outside of their, uh, their aim, desiring to build a lasting city on planet earth, or even expecting one on earth. And so we move on to verse 5. I think it's hilarious that it says, while he was still talking. I mean, Peter is still talking when, the, when God Almighty interrupts him. And this bright cloud overshadows them and a voice is heard. And what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I want you to remember when uh, God was speaking, Israel told Moses, you go up and talk to God because who can hear the voice of God and live? Like you speak with him. We're terrified of the Lord. And so God actually obliged that request. And so he begins to communicate to his people through prophets. Uh, and so, you know, the cloud was this, vis- this visible presence of God in the Old Testament. The Lord always showed up in a cloud. This is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Kings, Israel. Uh, I mean, Isaiah, Haggai, all major examples of the Lord showing up in his presence coming in a cloud. But Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27 describes, uh, uh, yeah, how Israel, how God came uh, in the cloud with this booming voice that terrified them. And so they they asked that God would communicate through Moses. Like I said, he obliged. Uh, And then this is an important piece when we understand God comes in this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration and the words he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, listen what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. So after centuries of silence, After Haggai, after Zechariah, after Malachi, centuries of silence, God began to speak again. He began to speak loudly. He began to speak very clearly. The Lord Jesus, like we referred back to, shows up, climbs a mountain, and preaches the greatest sermon on the law. God has started to speak again. And he's speaking through his son, the Lord Jesus Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The greater prophet has arrived and he's begun to speak. And so this account of the transfiguration being reminiscent of Exodus 24 and 34 and understanding the fulfillment of the prophets and of the law, uh, it starts to begin to serve us and to attest that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomic prophecy, but he's the new king of Israel in whom the people trust And they are blessed. And so then verse 7. That the disciples fall on their feet. Because they heard the voice of the Lord. And they're terrified. Jesus comes. 
Amen, somebody. Jesus comes to terrified sinners because they've heard the voice of the Lord. The holiness of God, His voice is booming and they're terrified. And Jesus comes and He doesn't just speak to them, He touches them. He comes down to them, touches them, puts their eyes on Him and says, Rise, have no fear. This is Jesus performing His office as prophet, as priest, as king in this one very moment. Coming down to us for this very purpose. That by His work, His people could enter the presence of God without fear. And then finally, verse 8. They lifted up their eyes. In the Greek here, it's, it's, a, it's a double negative. Not only did they not see anyone, they only saw Jesus. They saw no one, Jesus only. Only Jesus, brothers and sisters. Only Jesus The law and the prophets, they came and they had a temporary glory and they served a purpose, but they pointed to something greater. They pointed to what Christ would do. Christ is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. And this declares him the mediator of a new and better covenant. And he reconciles us to God. The father loves the son and the son communicates to us what belongs to him. So what, what, what do we kind of make of all this? He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's some good stuff to think about. I think there's a lot to learn in what we've just seen in this passage about who Jesus is. His identity is being exposed in a, in a very glorious way. Two, two main ways I want to bring to your attention this morning in this meditation. In terms of the identity of Christ, he is the son of God in whom the father is pleased. We read today, we heard read today, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted. It yields its fruit. All that he does prospers. Brothers and sisters, if if, if this has to be a description of you, To get into heaven. It has now become a path to hell. This is is your direct path to condemnation. Apart from Christ Jesus. Because absolutely none of us are righteous. The law of God shows you just how to get to hell. Because it shows you just what you are not. You are not perfect. There's not a relative righteous. There's not a relativization of seeking to be good. Of seeking to be moral. Of seeking to do this. No, no, no. You have to be it. You don't seek something that you are. You have to be righteous. You've got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Your heart has to be enthralled with the beauty and the wonder and the glories of God Almighty. Your mind can never doubt. Not even if he just exists, but your mind can never doubt his love. Anybody ever doubted the love of God for you? That can't happen. That can't happen if we're going to get to heaven. Anybody ever doubted if maybe maybe this isn't even real? That can't happen if we're going to get to heaven on, on the basis of our righteousness. In fact, we are the wicked who are cut off. We are the wicked who are cut off because we've hated our God. We've despised him. We've left him. But the sun came. The sun came down and he touched us. And the Lord says... He has set his king on his heel. Speaking of this mountain over and over and over in this text. He has set his king on his heel. 
I will tell of the, the decree that the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. These are the words used at Jesus' baptism. These are the words we read in our text today. These are the words Paul used talking about the resurrection, which makes Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he lives to make intercession for us. And blessed are all who take refuge in this son. And the son came down and he touched us. This is so that everything that is his is ours. He is the son who has pleased the father. You are in him, pleasing to the Father. And you receive it. You receive it. You do nothing for it. You can't give anything in exchange. You can only receive it. You can only receive the love of God this morning in Christ. You can only receive righteousness this morning in Christ. You can only be grateful for the love of God for you in Christ this morning. Nothing nothing other than that. You only receive it. Be grateful for it because it's been given to you. Not on the basis of anything you've done. Or will do. The great prophet. So that's number one. That the son of God in whom the father is pleased. That's the identity that we see of Christ Jesus. But the second thing. Briefly. He is the great prophet. The the definitive and final word of God. Hebrews 1 begins. Long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Brothers and sisters, God has spoken. God has a word for us, if you will. And it's a word that's better than the condemnation of the law. It's a word better than the prophet saying, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a word that is better than uh, he comes to judge both the living and the dead. It's a word that says, you are righteous. It's a word that says, he has crushed death. He has crushed Satan. And all of your enemies have no hold over you. It's a word that says the dead man will be dead. You will resurrect imperishable. Your life is hidden in Christ and when he appears, you'll be like him. It's a word that says you have nothing to fear. You approach the throne of grace boldly, brothers and sisters. And I just want to remind us, it's been given to us. We did nothing for it. We do nothing to keep it. And if we could all just receive it this morning as something that the Father has done to us because He's good. And so as you think about the end of your life, if you think about the crazy things that go in our world, as you think about the great day of judgment before the throne of God, do you have fear? Do you have fear? Does fear haunt you this morning when you think how close you are to death? That tomorrow we could die. That judgment is coming. I think if we're all honest, we say, yeah, I have fear because I'm still human and the dead man just won't leave me alone. I know I've died with Christ. I know that Christ is enough for righteousness. I know that Christ is enough for forgiveness. I know I can do nothing in this life to change what he has done for me. And I still have fear and the Lord is compassionate. And he comes down and he touches us every single day saying, 
have no fear. And so let's move on here to section two. Briefly, this conversation coming down the mountain. Verse nine, and they were coming down the mountain and Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Uh, This is, um, you know, Jesus is often saying, tell no one, tell no one, because there's a time and a place when he's going to reveal the great plan of God, because he will die and suffer for his people. Uh, He doesn't want big crowds coming because he can heal diseases. He wants people coming because they need righteousness. They need forgiveness. Uh, So uh, not only that, but Jesus then says um, in in verse 10, the disciples ask him, well, why then, if if the Son of Man is going to be raised from the dead, why does Elijah have to come first? I thought he was supposed to come first because that's what the scribes say. So they all they already have this different picture of what the resurrection is going to mean. I mean, they're still thinking about an earthly kingdom because it's like, well, if this is going to happen, whatever the raising from the dead means, wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? Because that's what the scribes say, and they they say that you're fake because Elijah hasn't come yet. And so he 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 then begins to say, in verse eleven, he answers them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, remember Malachi 4. Elijah will come and he'll restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah's already come and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament, shows up and they say he's crazy. He's demon-possessed. That man is wild. Been living in the woods, eating honey, got a rope around his waist. I mean, he's weird. Jesus comes offering sinners mercy, and they're like, this guy's a drunk and a glutton. I mean, he, this, this is, he's reckless, just as reckless. Remember that? Jesus says, these, these Pharisees and the scribes are like kids. They, they play a happy song, and they're mad that nobody dances. They play a sad song, and they're mad that nobody weeps. And it's just like, because what they see, they don't like. Well, why is that? Well, the same reason that John the Baptist was killed by Herod, they hated the righteousness of the law. Now, the Pharisees hate the righteousness revealed in the gospel. Because the gospel says you've got none. Herod's mad because I, well, I want to I be with whoever I want to be with. I, I can take it. I mean, we, they hate God's moral law. And then the Pharisees come through and Jesus says that you actually have no righteousness at all. On this great sermon on the mount, when he says that you haven't kept the law, you aren't perfect. And they're, and they're upset with the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. And so, as we come to, to meditate on this whole occasion here, uh, that, that I'll say one more thing. Elijah being fulfilled in John the Baptist, did John the Baptist just restore all things? Was all things just, did the kingdom of God come right then and everything was better in the church of God? No. But he began to proclaim the kingdom that would restore all things. He was preparing the way for restoration, if you will. So, as you think about the scriptures and how God has revealed himself as a redeemer, think about how he has revealed this righteousness that saves us. It's in the gospel of his son. God the son putting on flesh and dying. It doesn't sound like a very victorious story. It's foolishness to the world because it doesn't show a lot of strength. God Almighty humbles Himself and then humbles Himself more to death. And it saves us. 
It's through weakness and suffering that God has actually shown his power. So too with us in the Christian life. The problem is that we're we're just like Peter. We despise suffering and we want to camp out on the mountaintops. If you look at the next section, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Or, excuse me, before that, Jesus heals a boy with a demon. Well, Jesus heals him because the disciples run into him and they couldn't heal him. These demons were so strong that they they run into this mess and only Jesus could could help it. Who who wants to leave seeing Jesus' glory to go down into that mess? Right? It's like, well, of course, we want to stay on the mountain. It's a lot better up here. It feels nice. I feel like God loves me and I feel close to the Lord. It's nice here. Why do I got to go down there? We like Peter. When you hear about the cross, no, 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 Jesus. But when it comes to the hope of earthly comfort, we want to set up camp. If it's comfortable to us on this earth, we feel God's love. It feels nice. We just want to stay there. It talks about a cross. When we talk about weakness, suffering, we all freak out and fight against it because we're naturally theologians of glory. And so I want to spend our time talking about a theology of glory and a theology of the cross in a very pointed way uh, this morning. And here, I'll I'll do this by basically saying what a theology of glory is and what a theology of the cross is. And I hope you hear this in a way that you reflect on your own life. As we look at this story and do our best to try to go through this and understand this, uh, and we take away how how Peter kind of camps on the mountaintop, missing the entire story here of redemption. Because he just wants to feel good. Wants that earthly comfort, the earthly kingdom. So we, Because we try to put God in a box. We say, if he exists, then he has to conform to the way that we understand things. We downplay righteousness and we downplay sin in order to justify ourselves. We think we can sanctify ourselves through quiet times and we think we can make the world a utopia through moral living. But was our Lord preaching sermons that way? Was he a theologian of glory? Or was he a theologian of the cross? Did he promise an earthly utopia in this life? Did he promise perfection in this life? Did he promise eight steps for anything ever? A theologian of glory is one who approaches Christianity as... uh, A way to minimize difficult and painful things. It seeks to defeat them or at least move past them rather than looking them dead in the face and calling it what it is. A theologian of glory wants something that makes sense. The way that we understand things. A theologian of glory wants to earn things from God and become very successful in this life. Because of what he's earning from God. A theologian of glory wants to build a ladder to God. It sees Christ coming to us in order to aid us in that process. Not to be everything, not to be the whole process, but to help us in our process of getting to God. A a theology of glory says that if human strength is demonstrated through control and raw power here on earth, then God's strength must be the same way, only just to an infinite degree. A theologian of glory says that faith will help me feel better and it will help me believe that things are just going to work out in this life. Summarizing all that, a a theology of glory admits to having bad days. Days are tough, struggles real, that's true. But, But my faith is so strong that none of that even matters. 
because all could give way uh, and I'll be spiritually strong uh, all the time. It'll, I'll just be really happy. Just ignore all the pain. I admit it's there, but I'm going to stay spiritually strong and move past it. The theology of glory might say that the problem with sin is that there's a lack of trust and failure to yield to the Spirit. There's probably some kind of weak commitment to a life of obedience. A theologian of glory says that the Christian can have glory in this life if he would just perfect and offer spiritual things to God which deserve God's favor. And this is natural to fallen humanity. This is your default. This is my default. And so it's no wonder that most of our unbelieving neighbors think that Christianity is about folks who have this extreme preoccupation with becoming morally superior people. Oh, and belief in God and going to church will really help us in this process. But what is this going to do for us, church? How will this help us with ongoing sin and a seeming lack of visible transformation in the Christian life? Because all of what I described is not the foolishness of the gospel that the world stumbled over. The world understands all of what I just said very well. But you see, a theologian of the cross doesn't wait for or hope in an earthly paradise. A theologian of the cross knows that faith doesn't remove the suffering and the pain. It identifies God as hidden in the suffering. Through weakness and suffering. Think about the cross. How does God defeat evil and death and sin? Well, it looks like it crushes his son. Theologian of the cross knows that we live by faith, not getting rid of our sins. We live by faith. We don't live uh, before God by getting rid of our sins. We live by faith. And while we're called to kill our old sinful nature, there is no ridding of our, there's no ridding ourselves of the old man until we enter glory. And so a theologian of the cross knows that it's not the, the presence of persistent sin, but it's the absence of faith in Christ that separates us from God. Theologian of the cross knows that all the blessings of Christ are ours. But we don't taste the fullness of them until we enter resurrected life and glory. Theologian of the cross sees the cross as revealing the fundamental nature of God's involvement. This side of heaven. Where do we see the power of God? Like I said, in defeating sin and death. By letting it seemingly triumph over Christ. We see God's power in the weakness of the cross. We see his righteousness in his wrath poured out on the sun. We despair of ourselves and our own righteousness. We know that we are weak. And we look to the righteousness and the strength of God in Christ. And we live by faith, not by sight. When a family member gets this awful cancer diagnosis. When we feel like failures as parents. When we're close to death and all we fear is fear. All we feel is fear. 
when nothing in our life gives us reason to think that God loves us, circumstantially. When the struggle feels way closer than joy. When the emotional turmoil in our hearts and our minds is all we can feel ever. When we pray and, and, and don't have a clue where those prayers go. When God doesn't feel near. When we feel weak. When we feel absolutely nothing. And numbness is, is, is a more popular feeling in my life than spiritual happiness. What does faith do then? Faith gives us hope in a glory that is coming. Faith tells me that God loves me no matter what I feel, no matter what turmoil is happening. Faith says that Christ is my righteousness. Faith says that I approach the throne of grace with boldness. Faith says that God's ear is always toward me. Faith says I'm not going to operate according to what I feel and I'm going to just seek to give my life for the good of my brothers and sisters. Although I don't want to. My life's a struggle and i, I got to give more energy to my family and then more energy to my, my brothers and sisters in the church. Faith says, yeah, and it's okay that you do that in a weak manner. You're just seeking to love your neighbor. You're seeking to trust what God has said. Because God has a word and it's true for you no matter what you believe. Or what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Christ is enough for forgiveness and for righteousness. And so the Lord Jesus says that I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we face trouble. Trouble is promised. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have struggle because we live in a fallen world and sin has ruined everything. It's ruined us. It's ruined everyone you know. It's ruined the whole entire creation. There will be tribulation. And you face it not because you have just all the happiness in the world. You face it and it hurts and it's hard knowing that Christ has overcome it. That you don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to fear the condemnation of the law anymore. Romans 5, 5. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so, brothers and sisters, as we all seek the, the glorious mountaintop experiences, and we just always want to feel good, always just want to be happy, that time is not now. But that time is coming. There is a mountaintop, the Mount of Zion, that will last forever. And we will feast in the house of Zion, on the mountain of Zion, as God's king serves us forever. And his glory is the light of glory. And we will have no fears. We will never doubt God's love for us again. Tribulation won't be a word that we even consider, ever. The struggle doesn't exist. The fight against sin, you won't have it anymore. Fear of death, death doesn't exist. And peace will be ours forevermore. And so let's pray.